All right, it's time to announce the winner of the drawing for the God Who Weeps. So there weren't very many entries, I think nine. So that means you all, the, the nine of you ha have an 11% chance of winning. And the winner is Enrique Polito from Utah. So good job. Uh, I forgot to put the city on there. So uh, anyway. <laughs> I got the zip code, so hopefully it'll get to you. In fact, maybe I might drop this off uh, tomorrow, and uh, we'll see. Hopefully you'll be home. So <laughs> Anyway, congratulations, Enrique. Uh, good job. You, you lucked out, so here it is. The God Who Weeps. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. Why did Jesus die for us? Was he just a moral teacher and that was his important thing? Or did he really suffer an infinitely for our infinite number of sins? Why does God require a person to die for us? Isn't that barbaric? We'll talk about some of these different atonement theories with Dr. Terrell Givens. He's the biographer of Eugene England book, uh, Stretching the Heavens. And if you don't have this book, you should get it. It's a fantastic book. I really recommend it. Well, there was another story about atonement theories, and I'd love to, to have you talk a little bit about that, that uh, he got a little bit of flack for as well. Yeah, he did. Uh, can you kind of give us a brief background on atonement theories? Sure. Let me see if I can go through very, really, really quickly. Um, the, the early church, the first couple of centuries, didn't seem to concern themselves with atonement as a theology. Jesus died for us. He resurrected. That seemed to be the essential uh, theological elaboration of his death. Uh, the atonement doesn't show up as a word, right, in, in earliest Christian writings. But then a couple of centuries into the tradition, theologians begin to try to articulate what did it mean, why did he have to die, and in what sense did he substitute himself for us. And so very, really most significant development <clears throat> probably comes in the 11th century with satisfaction theory of, of Anselm. And the idea is that God is a, a governor, he's a sovereign, of the universe, uh, his majesty has been offended, his dignity has been impugned by our rebellion, and therefore some kind of a, a payment has to be made, some kind of a penalty. And so Christ offers to satisfy an offended justice, sovereignty, by paying the price. Abelard, writing a few years later, 11th, 12th century, vehemently repudiates that notion and insists that, that what really happens is that we are just so, it's the shock of divine love, of seeing what Christ underwent on our behalf, that our hearts are broken and we are moved to repent. So that becomes the theology of, of moral exemplariness. And uh, as we get to the age of the reformers, Calvin and Luther develop satisfaction theory into penal substitution, which becomes the most pervasive model in the modern Christian world. Uh, penal substitution is, is all predicated on the idea of justice. Justice demands punishment. We sin, somebody has to be punished. God is waiting to punish somebody, so Jesus says, well, you can punish me, so he punishes Jesus. And uh, that's also related to the Protestant theology of grace, which is technically called uh, imputed righteousness. So Christ dies for us, and he will be judged in our place. And that's the only way that we can be found innocent. So Latter-day Saintism never develops its own theology of atonement. 
Um, Joseph Smith never even used the word, as far as I can find. And uh, so we just kind of assimilate what's in the air. Uh, when jo uh, James Talmadge writes Jesus the Christ and gets to the most important principle of atonement, he effectively says, we don't know. We don't, I'm not gonna pretend to understand what happened in the garden or on the cross, but in some way, right, we are redeemed by his, his offering. Well, Jean England was distressed that the language of Latter-day Saint discussions of atonement migrated toward the penal substitution, which he thought was perverse. This notion that God's, he's got to punish somebody. Yeah. So he's going to punish Somebody's going to have to pay. Somebody has to pay. So it's about retributive justice. Justice is retributive. It's not educative. It's not reformative. It's retributive in this model. And so Jean wanted to take us back to Abelard's theory of moral exemplariness. So he writes an essay that they all might be saved. I think, is that the name of it? It's, anyhow, it's, it's one of the first issues of dialogue, and it's, uh, it's his theology of atonement. And it's beautiful. It's lovely, because it avoids all of the, the viciousness and the vengeance and the fury, and it's all about the shock of divine love and how that, like the Book of Mormon says, we are drawn to Christ by that gesture. So it's a lovely article. And uh, he sent a copy to Elder Packer, and he sent a copy to Elder Maxwell. Uh, and this is typical of him. He would generally send them his work because he just really craved uh, apostolic um, approbation for his work. Was that a mistake? Well, I won't <laughs> pass judgment on whether that's a mistake. I think the most generous way to look at it is to recognize that he had a place in the public square since he was an editor and an eminent writer and professor. And he wanted assurance that he was aligned with true doctrine and, and that he had their, their approval for what he was doing. So I don't think that in and of itself is problematic. Uh, but he pushed it a little far. Um, anyhow, and he didn't get their approval. And he, well, he, piecemeal he would, but never, never a kind of blanket approval for his, his major theological projects. So we have a copy of the response that he received from Elder Maxwell. And the way I would summarize it would be to say, Gene, love your article. The only fault I can find with it is none of it's true. <laughs> Not exactly those words, but that was, that was the essence. He just said he wasn't so sure that it was true. We don't have, I, don't, I couldn't find a copy of Elder Packer's response, but we know that it was negative. So we have him soliciting approbation from two apostolic figures. Mac, I don't think Elder Maxwell was an apostle at that time, but seemed to be. <clears throat> And we know that the response was, no, this is not good doctrine. But he continued to teach it every fireside opportunity he had, every time he's a gospel doctrine teacher. That's anthologized in subsequent collections. And uh, it all comes to a head when he is teaching uh, Sunday school uh, much later, in the 80s. And uh, a member of his class writes a letter of complaint to the stake president who happens to be Merrill Bateman, and says, you got this, this cowboy teaching crazy heretical doctrines on atonement. And to his credit, uh, President Batesman's response is, well, you meet with Gene and you two sort it out. And so this guy keeps a meticulous record of the conversation and oh a letter goodness. that he writes it's later like the to Gestapo. the president. <laughs> and, and effectively, right, Gene owns his, his, his theology, and he, he won't back down. 
And the main problem seems to be, uh, from the perspective of the parishioner, that there's nothing metaphysical about it. Nothing real in the universe has transpired. We just have this instance of a suffering man whose example affects us. And uh, Jean didn't deny that his interpretation was essentially correct. Well, Jean hears no more about it for a number of years, and then President Bateman ends up being the president of BYU. And in Jean's very first meeting with President Bateman, Gene uh, later writes in his journal, it was cold, it was icy, it was very awkward, I didn't feel at all that there was any warmth there. And then as I left, he asked me one final question. Oh, by the way, what do you think about the atonement? And I can't quite understand how Gene could be so oblivious to the connection, right? But the dots didn't come together for him. In his journal, he wrote, what an odd question. <laughs> well, no, it's not an odd question if you remember the history and that he was the stake president presiding over this conflict and that it goes all the way back to 1969 or 70 when the article was first published. But he, didn't, he, he couldn't quite put the pieces together. Even at this late date, Gene is still teaching and, and standing behind this idea of atonement. So that would seem to be... This is the moral exemplar, right? Moral exemplary right. theology of atonement. And he, he never had any explanation from any ecclesiastical figure as to what was wrong. <clears throat> so I can only speculate, uh, but I would think that the, the, the problem would be that all four standard words use the language of substitution. So even if it's not penal substitution, there has to be something that happened more than just this, this willing sacrifice. Um, and in Jean's version, there isn't any explanation of why the atonement was universally efficacious. Most people have never heard of the crucifixion, will never be moved by it. So does, how does the atonement relate to them? So I think that the, the problem with, with the moral exemplary the theologies of atonement, I think they're beautiful and powerful. I don't think they're fully sufficient to explain the universality of the efficacy of the atonement. And I'm guessing that something like that may have been uh, at the heart of the discontent on the part of some of the brethren. Well, because I know, I have, I have a distaste for penal substitution. Why, did, why does God need Jesus to die? It just yeah. seems very barbaric yeah. to me, very Stone Age thinking. Um, but, I mean, is, is that the official atonement theology of the LDS Well, we church? don't have an official atonement theology. <laughs> I mean, as I said, all of the standard works use language that suggests some kind of substitution has taken place. He suffers on our behalf, for us, in our stead, language like that. I personally don't think that penal substitution is uh, an accurate or true or inspiring model because it makes God out to be this vengeful figure who demands right. somebody pay a price. And Nietzsche, the philosopher Nietzsche, pointed out long ago that what's perverse about that is it presupposes that my happiness in seeing you punished will balance out the pain of your deed. And we get to this zero equilibrium. And in fact, Augustine even wrote um, that the happiness of the blessed in heaven will consist in part on their ability to see the suffering of the damned in hell. 
So there's this perverse strain of vengeance that runs through much of Christian discourse. And I would like to think that we can believe in the universality of the atonement without having to take that route. Can you tell us a bit more about what you think the atonement means? Or what's, what's your theory? Well, <laughs> uh, I, my, my first statement would be, I don't know. I certainly, if James Talmadge didn't get it, I certainly don't presume to know. What I can say is that I think B.H. Roberts articulates a theology of atonement that does the best job of those I have seen of reconciling scriptural accounts of substitution with a God who is, above all else, loving and wants to educate and inspire uh, rather than punish. Um, the name I would give that is consequential substitution, which is a horribly ugly term. But, <laughs> but what it means is um, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants alike, as I read them, give us a way of thinking about justice <clears throat> that is really helpful and healthy, and that is to see justice as the fulfillment of desire. Section 8832 says that at the day of judgment, you'll get whatever you're willing to receive. It doesn't say you'll get what you deserve or what you earned. It says you'll get whatever you are willing to receive. And uh, when we have the many discussions of the law of restoration in the Book of Mormon, that's essentially what that law seems to be about. If you choose goodness and light, you will get goodness and light. It's what you choose, what you desire, what you really, really want. So in that case, we can think of justice as more about the, the linkage of choice and consequence. That's what justice is. If you choose, if, if I said you want broccoli or ice cream, and you say broccoli, and I give you ice cream, well, probably the other way around. <laughs> you say ice cream, and, and I say broccoli, well, and I give you broccoli, that's not just, right? Because you had a choice, I assured you your choice, and then you, the consequence doesn't follow as it should. Or if I say, if you do your homework, I'll give you ice cream. You do your homework, and I don't give you ice cream. That isn't just, because you showed by your actions what you were choosing. So I think one can always think of justice in terms of a, a linkage of, of choice and consequence. If that's the case, and there are these laws given, which Second Nephi uh, 2 uh, tells us about, then for God to be God, he has to govern and manage a universe in which there is an unfolding of consequences in accordance with choice for those who are educated sufficiently, right? And if, that, if that's the case, but none of our agency is ever perfect, right? We always see through a glass darkly, we're impeded by genetic disorders or inheritance or bad education. So we all have, have agency, we're all responsible, but we're responsible to differing degrees, right? A child born with fetal alcohol syndrome is not going to be as liable for an alcoholic addiction as I am. So, as I understand atonement, Christ effectively says to all of us, right, your knowledge and your development is imperfect. If you want to choose again repentance, then I will bear the consequences that have to unfold from that choice. God's not imposing, it's not a penalty, it's not a punishment. They're just the natural consequences that follow because that's a law. There's, there's a connection between choice and consequence. But I will bear that consequence for you. So it's the consequence 
that he substitutes, not a penalty. And that's how B.H. Roberts understood the mechanism behind atonement. And uh, I think that's a beautiful and compelling and logically coherent explanation. I also would like to think there's room in that for Gene England's and Abelard's theory. Of the, right? There is something also about the spectacle, the, the shock of divine love that we witness that is the catalyst to our transformation. That's cool. I just, that's more appealing to me than penal substitution, I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs>